how can online retailers build habit-forming experiences into their e-commerce businesses? My guest in today's show is a New York Times best-selling author of a book that teaches entrepreneurs how to build habit-forming products. He's a product development and consumer psychology expert and is here to talk about how to get your customers hooked to your brand and stores. Welcome to the 2X e-commerce podcast show where we interview founders of fast-growing seven- and eight-figure e-commerce businesses and e-commerce experts. They'll tell their stories, share how they 2 x their businesses, and inspire you to take action in your own online retail business today. And now, here he is, the man in the mix, Kunle Campbell. Hello, 2Xers. Welcome to the 2X e-commerce podcast show. I'm your host, Kune Campbell, and this is the podcast where I interview experts, experts in e-commerce, experts in retail, experts in technologies that drive online retail, and of course, experts in digital marketing who will help you uncover e-commerce marketing tactics and strategies to grow your stores. So if you are keen on growing metrics such as conversions, average order value, traffic, repeat customers, and ultimately sales, you are in good hands here. On today's show, I'd like to welcome Nia Ale to the show. Nia, for those of you who don't know, is the author of a New York Times best-selling book on consumer psychology and technology called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. He is a prominent figure in the Silicon Valley, in the Silicon Valley startup scene with specialist expertise in product development and consumer psychology. Nurse Hooked model fleshes out the build phase of Eric Reese's Build, Measure, Learn, Lean methodology. Nurse work is very much centered around the building of successful habit-forming products, particularly in technology. I read his book and I was like, I have to talk to, to this man. He's here to talk to us today about the hook methodology in the context of online retail, hopefully. And um, without further ado, I'd like to welcome to the show, Nir. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Um, could you take a, a minute or two to, to tell um, the audience more about yourself, please? Sure. So um, I uh, started my inquiry into habit-forming technologies back when I, I was at my last company. I was at, the, at a company that uh, helped start that was at the intersection of gaming and advertising. And what I noticed at the intersection of gaming and advertising is that these two industries are reliant on, you know, let's face it, mind control. These two industries are, are dependent upon it, in fact, that, you know, the advertisers don't spend those billions of dollars for their health. And gaming companies, you know, there's, there's, you'd be hard to find an industry that's more dependent on changing user behavior. And so what I noticed was at the intersection of those two industries is that there's this methodology that I thought should be used by others, that uh, it shouldn't just be gamers and advertisers that use these uh, methodologies, that I thought there was a lot of potential in all kinds of industries to help people change their behaviors for the, for the better. And so what I wanted to do was to kind of bring these uh, techniques to the, the broader audience. 
so that people building all sorts of experiences uh, and all sorts of products to improve people's lives could use these methodologies to help people live happier, healthier, more productive, more connected lives by using the, the psychology of, of behavior design. That's quite interesting. Did you put the methodology together at an instant or was it developed over time based on your observation of the gaming industry? Oh, it, it, it uh, happened over a very long period of time. I, I spent about three years in the advertising and gaming industry, my last company, and then I spent another three years doing research, spending a lot of time in academic libraries, trying to combine what I learned in the field with what we were seeing in the academic literature. And you know, I, what I found was that there weren't that many people out there who had you know started companies, who had been CEOs, who had built products, and yet who could look at the psychology and look at the academic literature and try and actually put it to use. I, I didn't see anybody out there who was filtering how much interesting content there is out there, but maybe not as practical of content. So that's really what I wanted to do was to help entrepreneurs build better products and services by giving them a guidebook to consumer psychology, to customer habits. Interesting. I, I view it as a why, you know, you're answering the why question. Okay. Could you break down the, the four-step hook model to, to build an addictive products, please. Sure, but let me just correct a little bit of what you said. It's not actually addictive because addiction has a very specific definition. An addiction is a persistent compulsive dependency on a behavior or substance. And addictions are always bad, right? Addictions hurt the user. So we don't want to create addictive products. And my book is not titled How to Build Addictive Products. My book is titled How to Build Habit-Forming Products because habits are something else completely. Habits are nothing more than impulses to do a behavior with little or no conscious thought. It's this itch, it's this urge to do a behavior without really thinking about those behaviors. And it turns out that we can have good habits as well as bad habits, right? Everybody thinks about the bad habits, but we have lots of good, healthy habits. In fact, about 40% of what we do every single day, day in and day out, is done purely out of habit. And so I believe that we can harness these habits to help us live better lives. And so the model that I describe in my book is called the hook model, and it's a methodology, it's an experience designed to connect your user's problem, whatever it is that's plaguing your user's day-to-day life, with a solution with enough frequency to produce a habit. So when we can cycle users through these four steps of a trigger, action, reward, investment, through successive cycles through these hooks, this is how customer preferences are shaped, how tastes are formed and how these habits take hold. So these hooks have four basic steps. They have a trigger, an action, a reward, and finally an investment. Okay, what's a breakdown of a trigger? Sure, so triggers, we have two types of triggers. Triggers are things that cue us to action. They tell us what to do next. And we have two types of triggers. So we have these external triggers that give us some information inside the trigger itself. So a click here button, or a friend telling you through word of mouth about this great new app you should try out, or a play button on a YouTube video. These things that tell us what to do next, right? An app notification that tells us to open the app. These things explicitly tell us what to do. That's the external trigger. So we've all seen those. But what turns out to be absolutely critical in forming these long-term behaviors and these long-term habits is forming an association with what's called an internal trigger. An internal trigger is something that tells the user what to do next, just as reliably as those external triggers. But in this case, the information for what to do is not stored in the trigger itself, but instead informed through an association 
in the user's mind. So what we do when we're in a particular place, a certain situation, a particular routine, uh, when we experience particular emotions, dictates what we do next. These impulses with little or no conscious thought. And so what these habit-forming products do is that they create these connections, these links with these associations, with these internal triggers, so that every time we experience these internal triggers, we automatically use this product or service. Okay, I'd like to break down the internal triggers. Is, is that some sort of map or a blueprint of internal triggers and then you kind of map external triggers with technology, in, in this case, with internal triggers. So there could be boredom, as you alluded to in your book, and um, you map that out to, to a product YouTube. So is it finite, the blueprint for internal triggers? And do external triggers kind of change, interchange? So, you know, Facebook might not be Facebook in 20 years. Something might, you know, replace that internal trigger for our need to connect to other humans. Right. There's a lot of different questions you're posing, which is great. There's a lot to this field that's fascinating. So let me, I'll tackle a few of the different questions. So in terms of what we're addressing, it, it has to be some kind of routine, some kind of situation, a place, or an emotion, something that occurs frequently enough in the user's life in order to allow us to create this association. So any one of these internal triggers, the important thing is that there's some kind of connection between what's occurring frequently in the user's life and the user's behavior, right, with our product or service. And so that, that's the critical element, that it occurs frequently enough to form this habit with. So that's the important part. Now, the most frequent internal triggers are these emotions. And not just any emotions, but a negative emotion. So what we do when we're feeling bored or lonely or indecisive or fatigued or uncertain, what we do when we feel these internal triggers, these emotions, dictates what we do next. Why? Because these things are painful. These things don't feel good. And so to find relief, the brain is a pattern-matching device, right? That's one of the things that our brain is best at is finding the patterns to its problems. So when the brain experiences one of these negative emotions, it looks for relief from something. And whatever can provide relief reliably, that's where these habits are formed, is a satiation of these itches, these desires, these, these cravings, these wants. And then it drives us to take action. Exactly. Which is the next step of the hook, the action phase of the hook. Right. Now, this is an e-commerce podcast. And I'd like to sort of relate this to commerce. Your single reference to commerce, to e-commerce in, in your book was, was Amazon. And it's quite an interesting, you know, example. You, you mentioned the fact that Amazon allows competitors, you know, advertise directly. It almost creates a utility effect, a retail utility effect where you sport with choice and you have no choice but to come back again and again because, you know, you're going to find what you're looking for at every given point in time, at least most times. Because um, retention to me is a health of, of business, you know, customer lifetime value. Right. No, you're absolutely right. That retention is, is incredibly important. That, that most customers, you know, don't buy. Uh, well, I just saw a study that showed that on e-commerce sites, that most customers only buy. Uh, I'm sorry, 30 percent of customers only buy once a year on on e-commerce sites, which is abysmal. Right? That's terrible. You spent all that money and effort trying to find the customer, and then just having 30 percent of them use the product, you know, use your your e-commerce site more than once a year is is horrible. So we really need to figure out how to get people to re-engage. And, and part of the problem is that most e-commerce sites are only used when somebody needs something very specific. But what Amazon has done, which is which is really brilliant for so many reasons, you know, it started out as a bookseller, but then now it's the everything store, as Brad Stone called it, the everything store. So what does that do? 
think about that one of the most important criteria, there's only two things that we need to form a new habit. Number one is that we have to have the behavior occur with sufficient frequency. And so think about how frequently you need anything, right? That's very frequent, right? As opposed to most e-commerce sites, they only sell one thing, right? Like vegan dog food or chocolate pudding or, uh, you know, whatever, <laughs> paint spray, you know, spray paint, whatever it might be. Most e-commerce sites only sell one thing. And so it's no surprise that users only go to them when they need that one thing. So that's, that's the biggest shortcoming. That's why most e-commerce sites can't form habits is that their product just isn't needed frequently enough to form this habit. So does that mean that e-commerce sites should throw in the towel and say, okay, that's it, we're done, we can never form a habit? Not necessarily. I'll relate a quick story. I, I was at a conference lately that uh, hired me to come give a speech in front of 700 real estate agents, people who, who facilitate the sale of real estate. And the person who introduced me said, now we're going to have a habit expert near AOL. He is He's going to tell you how to make home buying and selling a habit. Well, I stood on stage and said, listen, it's impossible to form a habit around buying and selling a home. Why? Because it doesn't occur frequently. It's the opposite of a habit. Why? Because it's something that doesn't occur frequently and requires a ton of conscious thought. The definition of a habit is a behavior that occurs with little or no conscious thought, but home buying is the opposite, right? We, we dwell and we go back and forth and we think about home buying a lot. It's a very thoughtful decision. So I did my workshop, I, I did my talk, and at the end of the workshop, a few agents came up to me and said, look, I realize that buying and selling a home is not a habit, but I know what I am going to create into a habit. One real estate agent said, look, I'm going to create an association with an internal trigger of any time that anybody in my neighborhood that I service feels uncertainty about money. When they feel fear that they might not have enough money for their retirement or that the stock market is bouncing up and down and they don't know how it's going to affect their kid's college fund or whatever it might be, when they feel fear about money, that negative emotion, I want them to call me. That's the habit I want to create. Or I want them to go to my website or my app that I'm going to create. So that's a perfect example. Another one said that another real estate agent said, I want to create the habit of whenever there's uncertainty about what's going on in my neighborhood this weekend, what kind of entertainment options there might be, I want people to check my newsletter. I'm going to send out a newsletter every single week. It's going to tell you the top five things to do in your neighborhood. And I want people to have the habit of opening up my email every single week. So what does this lead me to? Here's the lesson. Here's the, the tweetable phrase that I want everybody to remember. The result of engagement is monetization. The result of engagement is monetization. So, all right, you're an e-commerce site that, that sells a product that's infrequently bought. No problem. What else can you offer your customer? What other value can you offer your customer frequently enough to create a habit, to get them engaged, so that eventually the result of that engagement will be monetization. Just like that real estate agent who becomes the source, becomes the first person you think of when you have fear about money, right? The habit is I'm going to call my real estate agent. Guess who they're going to call when they're going to sell or buy a house? They're going to call that real estate agent, of course. And so that's how e-commerce sites need to think about this, is what other habits could they form with their product or service that as a result of that engagement, as a result of the goodwill, the value they provide their users, their users will come to them when they need to actually transact. Uh, and I see that, that that is probably why content marketing is such a buzz at the moment. There's a website called Digital Rev. They're based in Hong Kong and they sell cameras and accessories. And they have the biggest YouTube channel in photography. Right, 
Right. And, and YouTube has created many millionaires from this technique of people saying, you know, not a hard sell, but just making this, this daily video. I, I spoke to this wonderful woman named Mimi who sells hair extensions. And that's her business, but you wouldn't know it by watching her videos because she only talks about the name of her hair extensions maybe one time per video. And she's making millions of dollars selling this hair extensions because the result of the engagement with her users, with her viewers, the users are coming to figure out nice hairstyles. But the result of that engagement is that when they're in the market to buy this product, guess whose product they're going to buy. Uh, she's top of mind. I have another question with regards to, to the hook model. And uh, well, I'm, I'm flipping it on its head here. What about its application to referral marketing? So furniture, you hardly buy furniture. You, you probably buy furniture once in a decade or once in five or six years. But for a furniture retailer, online retailer, would you agree or disagree if you could embed the hook model into the post-purchase phase of their interaction and so when their friends or their family are looking for furniture, they recommend the online retail business. Well, I think that was exactly the point of that last question around figuring out other things that are engaging, that result in monetization. So I would think of what other services, what other pain points can you scratch, can you alleviate for your customer that aren't related necessarily to the furniture? I mean, IKEA is a perfect example of this. You know, there's a reason they said IKEA sells so much more than furniture. Some of those products are actually loss leaders. Some of the products they don't actually make very much money on at all. But, you know, the part of it is that they wanted to have a good mix of products that you buy frequently. So you go to Ikea, not just when you want to buy big furniture. You go to Ikea when you want to buy Swedish meatballs and when you want to buy crayons and when you want to buy things for your children's room that maybe are these small trinkets, right? Maybe it's a $5, $6 purchase. But the idea is that you're going to Ikea as your go-to stop for all sorts of things, not just the big furniture purchases. You know, that layer of that experience really is that the unique experience you find nowhere else. Right, that's part of it too, right? Okay, should startup e-commerce businesses start thinking about the hook model from a product level? A case in mind is a UK retailer. I'm going to interview them in a week or two. Um, they're called Lost.name and um, they're a personalized children's picture book. So basically, I bought a book for my son. My son's name is Tommy. They write a a tailored story, basically, on his name and how he found his name, how he lost his name. And they have grown phenomenally. And then their subscription e-commerce businesses like, you know, Birchbox, Naked Wines, Grey's, Nature Box, Dollar Shave Club and Bar Club. And what they have or what all these companies have, apart from Lost My Name, is this frequency of purchase. And um, they, they've managed to to kind of become habitual. Do you see e-commerce changing? Is subscription-based e-commerce more fad, or do you see it being more long-term as people start to adopt and start to think from a hook standpoint? You know, how do we get them hooked in the head first? You know, how do we get them more habitual first? And um, how do we translate these habits to to retention, to to, to money, to cash? So, so to be clear, not every business needs a habit. There's plenty of businesses that can drive users to their, their place of business with all kinds of things, right? You can uh, bring users to your place of business with the display advertising. You can use search engine optimization. You can ha- have a physical storefront, right? Set up shop on some corner, and you can have users come by and buy your, your wares. So it's not that you have to have a business that needs a habit. That's not what I'm advocating for. You know, this isn't magic pixie dust that you pour in every business and you'll have the next Facebook. You know, some businesses just don't need a habit and that's fine. But if your business model needs a habit, 
then you need a hook. And, and that's the point here is that there are certain businesses that rely upon habits who could not function, right? They would go out of business if they were not habits. And that there's a lot that we can learn from consumer psychology, even if your business doesn't need the entire hook, even if you don't necessarily need a habit. There's a lot of things that we can do to increase the desired behavior that we want to see with our customers by learning these principles of consumer psychology. So you can take the hook model piecemeal and you can learn about how to create better triggers, how to make the action more likely to occur, how to insert variable rewards, how to create the investments that bring people back. And you can take those lessons piecemeal and build a better product or service by understanding these principles of consumer psychology. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Okay. I have another question with regards to incorporating a social layer into commerce. A case in mind is, is Naked Wines. Um, they're a wine club and um, basically they sell wine to, to members and um, you could follow wine makers you know, on their sites, have conversations with the winemakers of the wine you actually drink. And that seems to help them with regards to retention because you, you build affinity with their brand. But more recently, I'm starting to see tech giants, especially in social media, like um, Pinterest just released the buy button and Google, well, Google's released the buy button and um, Facebook, there've been rumors about Facebook having a buy button as well as Twitter. Do you think there's a clash going on? Can online retailers still harness a social layer into commerce or do you think they could just piggyback off these platforms and um, use the goodwill they've built with their members to, to sell to, to their members? Well, it, it has to be authentic. The idea here is that, you know, inserting commerce into social network, I don't think there's a hard and fast rule of, you know, what platform should we use? Because this is very dynamic, right? This is constantly changing. What's important is that it has to scratch the user's itch. What I oftentimes and, and frankly way too frequently see is that some e-commerce retailer will say to themselves, oh my gosh, Facebook is a big deal, so we should put Facebook all over our site without asking ourselves, you know, does it make sense for me to like this, to comment on this, to socialize around this product? Is it something that would scratch the user's itch? What, what is the user's itch to begin with? And if you don't understand those questions, then, you know, users are going to call you for what you are, which is being a fraud, that, that you're, you don't understand why you're doing things. You're just doing them because they're trendy. And that's a bad idea. So, you know, we want to insert these, these social networks. We want to insert the ability to connect with other people. It's a very powerful motivator, but it has to be used appropriately when it actually provides value to the user, when it actually scratches their itch. And that's why we're seeing, you know, we're seeing a lot of sites these days yanking out a lot of these social networks from their sites because they finally are waking up to the fact that they're not actually really adding value, that users don't find them very beneficial, right? There's, I don't know why I would like that tire you're selling on your website. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and so without understanding why these things scratch users' itch, then it, it just clutters the experience and makes it a lot worse. Okay. What, what about personalized e-commerce or personalization in, in general? What role do you see personalization playing in um, habit-forming experiences, particularly to, to, to commerce? So I'm very, I'm very big on personalization. I, I think it can yield some amazing results. So, and the reason why, the theoretical basis for why, is that the investment phase of the hook model says that when we put something into the product, when we provide data or accrue followers or so, some kind of work that we do to make the product better with use, 
we become more committed to it. It, it makes it more likely that we'll return in the future. If you think about one great example of personalization, of course, everybody thinks of Amazon. Well, the more I use that product, the more data I'm giving them just passively, it becomes better and better for me, right? I get recommendations that are better. They, they have all my information about my addresses that I ship to various members of my family, right? So the more information I give them, the better they become as a service for me. And so it becomes harder to leave. I, if, if tomorrow there's an Amazon competitor, well, it would kind of bum me out that even if they were offering better prices at this other company, that they would have to learn all my preferences that Amazon already has. So I'm very bullish on personalization because I think it, it's part of this investment phase. The problem is that for most companies that work on a small scale, it's a hell of a lot of work. We haven't seen the service providers that can come in and easily implement kind of personalization as a service. There are some companies, but by and large, it requires a lot of heavy lifting, which is really a competitive disadvantage for small e-commerce retailers. It's, it's really a problem because the big guys are doing this themselves, right? The big e-commerce platforms understand how much personalization drives sales, and they're on it. They're doing it full speed ahead. They're building their own solutions. And unfortunately, it's going to be the smaller people who miss out on the benefits of personalization because it's just so hard to implement. From your experience as a consultant and um, in the startup world, what are the first steps to take with personalization or creating a personalized experience, really, and particularly in commerce? Right. So I think it would, it would start by asking yourself this fundamental question of what bit of work does the user do? to increase the likelihood of them using the product in the future. So that, that's where I've seen personalization go wrong, is that people say, well, let's personalize because we can. And that's a bad reason. <laughs> Instead, we need to ask ourselves, what piece of information can we ask the user to give us? What can we ask the user to do that will make the experience better for them with time? And that's what we should personalize around. So that's the first place to start. What's the bit of work the user does, a piece of information they could give you, which will make the site better with use. Which would be unique, case-by-case case basis, it really vary. Right, based on the product you're selling, exactly. Yeah. And the habit and the habit you're forming. Exactly. So let's imagine, I'm just going to wrap up now, I'm quite mindful of your time. Let's imagine I'm, I was an e-tailer selling, say, wallets and leather goods online. What metrics should I use to, to kind of determine what the hook would be for starters? The first thing you should do is to sit down and actually plot out what the hook is. So sit down and write for yourself what is the trigger, action, reward, investment, the four steps of the hook model, and there's a lot more detail about this in the book than we have time to cover in, in our 30 minutes together, but that would be the first place to start is what is your hook? What's the habit that you want to create with enough frequency to, to create this association with an internal trigger in the user's life? That, that would be the, the very first step. Then once you know that behavior and you know the internal trigger that you're going to associate it with, then you can start designing out what the steps in your user flow should look like. What should users do first, second, third? Because, listen, the, the big problem with e-commerce is that everybody designed e-commerce sites to be slicky, right? The idea was we want to get people shopping in their carts and checked out as quickly as possible, and that's terrific. We've optimized around that. But we're losing a huge opportunity by not making our sites sticky, that it's not just about optimizing for checkout. It's about optimizing for engagement, right? How do we bring people back so that we create a habit around coming to our site, not just when we need to check out and buy a product, but for more frequent occurrences throughout the user's day-to-day -day life. Do you, do you think building a community around it could, could work? Because um, I, I can't remember the name of the – there's a short – is it Choppies, I think – 
And what they've managed to do, Chop, is that they're an e-commerce business in, in the States, is they've been able to create a culture around their shorts. Right. So I think communities are a great source of what's called rewards of the tribe. It's certainly something that can bring people back. But again, it has to actually provide value for the user. It's not something that can be swapped on. You know, for example, Pinterest is a social network. Right? It's, it's not just about things. It's also about the people who put up those things and following the tastemakers. And now that they've built such a strong community, now it's easy for them to put in commerce. I mean, they're going to make a lot of money on, on all the things that they're going to sell because they have such a strong community. But it was first a community that people engaged with for its own sake, and now they're putting in the buying behaviors. It's good stuff. Fantastic. Okay, before you say your, your goodbyes, could you give our listeners one parting piece of advice in regards to consumer psychology and implementing a hook in, into, into commerce? Right. So I think it's all about understanding what the behavior that you wanted to create a habit around is, you know, a really fundamentally understanding what that singular habit is, and then figuring out the four steps of the hook, the trigger, the action, the reward, and the investment. And my book, again, just to wrap up, my book is Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And my website is nearandfar.com, and near is spelled N-I-R. I like my first name, nirandfar.com. Nirandfar.com. I would add it to the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Nir. Um, It's been an absolute pleasure sharing your insights. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of 2X e-commerce. To help you get more actionable insights and e-commerce growth hacks that will help you 2X your online retail business, hop over to 2xecommerce.com. It's a blog dedicated to e-commerce and multi-channel marketing run by the show's host, Kunle Campbell. 2xecommerce.com is packed full of articles and guides to help increase traffic to your store, increase repeat purchases, and average order value. Thanks for listening. Visit 2xecommerce.com.